In this episode of BSD Now, we cover open source and blogging bubbles, building of customized FreeBSD images, updating Minecraft in FreeBSD, upgrading FreeBSD jails using MakeJail, Dragonfly 6.0 performance benchmarks, OpenBSD consumer gateway launches, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 410, OpenBSD Consumer Gateway, recorded on the 30th of June 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backups for the truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome to our freshly recorded episode, at least at the time of recording. Um, <laughs> we're back with a new content for you every week. And it's kind of nice that people send us stuff. So we always have something to report. And the headlines this week is the open source software bubble that is and the blogging bubble that was. Yeah, this is an article by uh, Baldur Bjornjensen. Oh, wow, I've mangled that name. Um, famous for a great article where he declared everything was pop culture, uh, which is quite good. Um, and he has a, a really lengthy article here talking about, um, first, the, the blogging bubble. Um, let me find the right thing to quote from. Uh, the blogging bubble and is modern parallels. Uh, and he says, Google did not kill web blogs, but that's fair since they also created the web blog bubble. Uh, Google did kill web blogs. <laughs> you might not believe this if you weren't there, but one of Google's main problems once they got going was there just wasn't that much to see on the web. Having a great search engine is useless if, for example, somebody types in how to take better landscape photographs and nobody online has an answer. Google AdWords changed all of that. That, as well as free web blog hosting fueling the blogging bubble, you wrote a lot. You wrote a blog using uh, a web blog that came with decent SEO baked in, semantic structure and cross-linking. That's all you needed back then. Most of your traffic came from Google search results. All of your revenue came from Google's AdWords. It became profitable to churn out indistinct PAP that passed as information to fill Google search end results, so people did. The web blog ecosystem was built entirely around extracting value from AdWords. For a few, it was a springboard to launch something else. A few writing careers got off the ground but the vast majority was just AdWords. Weblogs as social media, a sideshow. Weblogs as unique medium, incidental. Even outfits with paid subscriptions like Metafilter relied on AdWords um, and had to course correct once Google popped the bubble, which they did because they had to. Most of it was fraudulent, fake clicks, spam blogs, link farms, black hat SEO. The blogging economy was filled with bad practices all around. People today don't appreciate just how rampant these practices were. And he continues to talk about um, what were blogs um, and what the, the foundation and relationship with FeedBurner and, and Google was. And it's, it's really interesting background, especially if you were not on the internet at the time or were not very on the internet at the time. Uh, and, and he continues, the willful blindness. Most people in the industry don't realize that the web dev eco economy is primarily extractive. As with the earlier assumption that Google must be trying to keep AdWords clean and sustainable, there's the assumption here that somebody in tech must be making sure that the work behind open source software is paid for. Or, almost as naively, they assume that it can all subsist as donation were. People in web dev constantly assume that something somewhere 
must be paying for the OSS dependencies they use. This is why developers come in with the entitlement of a paying customer. The OSS maintainer is supposed to serve them with the enthusiasm of somebody being paid. The worldview just doesn't accommodate the idea that this is unpaid labor, because then they'd have to start questioning the very sustainability of their own careers. Many of the misconceptions about OSS stem from the fact that the core of the ecosystem is funded. Facebook is pouring money into the React sub-ecosystem. Google keeps burning cash on the Chrome bonfire. Microsoft keeps funding developer infrastructure like Visual, Visual Studio Code, TypeScript, NPM, and GitHub. And those are just the prominent examples. They all fund tons of other projects, either directly or indirectly, through a wage surplus. A surprising amount of open source software is made by former big tech developers. They can afford to subsist on meager revenue for a time because their pay and stock options have left them free of debt and with well-stocked savings accounts. This is much more common than you think. Scratch away at the surface of pretty much any active open source project that has no discernible revenue and you either get a burnout waiting to happen or you'll find a formerly well-played dev coasting on savings. Many of the rest have solid VC funding. Uh, and, and he continues and... This is a bit of a rant, but it pokes really at, at what is happening inside open source software. And it's a, a great article. Um, and it's absolutely huge. Yeah, it uh, has a lot of points in there. And uh, it's it's certainly true that there are some parallels to draw between the two. Uh, since, you know, they started with the web blogs, it's kind of like, oh, we we don't like this landscape. We create our own. And then everyone has to play in our landscape and we define the rules. And uh, yeah, could be very well that this happens in open source or already has happened. And um, the question is how independent an open source project can be nowadays without these big uh, money sponsors. And we continue to see just small projects hinging on one or two people. Um, mm. One of my favorite examples is Curl, which is uh, I think two, two developers working on it f full time. Um, and but at a very engaged core set of people that push really well on social media, um, mm. the, the BSDs um, one reasonably well funded BSD actually FreeBSD does quite well. We have a, a a revenue stream and it allows the project to be the project and continue through donation. But a lot of the donations do come from big companies. Uh, but the the other BSDs are running on people. And they're, yeah. they're, they don't have loads of money behind them. And so if you're using the software, you should thank people for using it. And you should be, you know, we, we have open source appreciation days and uh, any developer that's worked on something is always happy to hear that somebody is using their software. Yeah, exactly. Even better if you enjoy them using it. <laughs> and complaining is not <laughs> appreciation. Like, oh, why aren't you finished with that yet? So it's true that the companies have a certain level of influence. I mean, they also have a lot of, they made a lot of stuff happen that couldn't have happened without the money or with the um, sponsorships or the, the yeah other benefits they put out on the project. So it's always you know how independent can you can you be, especially if it's one company only that is supporting you. Like how can you draw the line between you know the independent ones and the company making the rules? But yeah, so definitely check out the whole article with the points it makes. Uh, and yeah, let us know if you have some comments on that and we would be happy to maybe, you know, have a separate, um, discussion section about that. Cool. Then next up, we have something from Clara Systems, building customized FreeBSD images. They really are, 
um, providing a little article for us every week now. So that's kind of cool. And this article, let me scroll way down, is, uh, wait, who's the author? Doesn't it say at the bottom usually? Oh, okay, so this is about building customized FreeBSD images for cases where you want to run your own um, little software stack, mostly containing FreeBSD, but with your little special sauce on it. Uh, so this article starts with FreeBSD does a great job of being self-contained, <laughs> nice connection to the previous article, and easy to build, requiring only a few simple make commands to compile the system from scratch. But when it comes to configuring and installing the system in a repeatable way, the path is not so straightforward. Maybe you're looking uh, to build a pre-configured FreeBSD installation for your router or a deeply customized image with packages and all to be flashed to a fleet of embedded devices. So how could this be done? And so this article explores exactly that. So here they, in the whole article, they refer to an image as a file containing the partitions and contents of a complete and bootable FreeBSD system. So this could be uh, written to disk uh, without modifications. This could be a USB memory stick or a virtual machine image um, on FreeBSD's download page. So basically, um, this is about how, you know, does such a uh, system work at all? So it has a bootable FreeBSD image, which includes a UFS root file system, swap partition, and UEFI bootloader. And that's done by hand. And it is useful to understand the ba these basics uh, of the procedure to grasp how the later stages work, because then you know how you can make modifications in any of those. So first, there's the root file system, which typically contains the majority of files required for a functioning FreeBSD system and includes the kernel, of course, the system daemons and utilities, everything from, you know, CP, LS, the usual things that you definitely need to run the basic operating system, or it would be very hard without them, even if it's just a rescue image or a rescue system. And the configuration files, of course, in like uh, the ATC of... Uh, of all places. Um, so here's an example. They have uh, exported the root file system dir to $home slash rootfs, and they um, create destdir, destination directory, that's very commonly used, and you can redirect it to, especially in this case, the root file system. So you can say it's not, everything is not residing under user now, everything is now under my home directory slash rootfs. And there you can totally run wild and do install world, distribution, and install kernels. And then you have your own separate little distribution files in your own home directory and can modify it to your heart's content. And it creates a directory structure familiar with if you do an ls on, on slash on a FreeBSD system, but all the directories and symlinks that need to be there. And uh, that's what is populated after the um, install world uh, make uh, distribution and make install kernels are finished running. So then they start giving that machine a host name and they create a little file system tab. So these are some of the steps that would be done by the installer normally, but this one is self-contained and that's why they are set uh, from the get-go. So at this point, uh, you can make any other customizations you'd like to make and um, make config file changes or even delete files that you don't think are required. But <laughs> you would quickly see if that is a required file if the system doesn't boot anymore. Um, so yeah, start small and then uh, <laughs> keep growing from there after a couple of test uh, boots. So for more complex cases, you can change root into the system to interact with it. So change root slash home slash rootfs, and then you are in your system already. And you can see if you have the usual 
uh, functionality that you uh, are that you know from FreeBSD. Finally, you might want to choose a Bootstrap package and install some desired packages there, so that in the um, image there's already some packages in there that you think are good for the purpose that you're building this image. Okay, then it goes to the bootloader partition. Uh, you want to construct the ESP. This is a small fat formatted condition, uh, condition, partition containing a copy of FreeBSD's EFI loader. And that will enable the image to actually be booted from any firmware that supports UEFI, which is modern computers that you can buy should have UEFI nowadays. Embedded is a bit special, but um, if it's a machine in the rack or for your home use, then definitely this will have UEFI. Uh, they describe also with a couple of commands how to do that. And then the final image is created using make image. And that is creating in a GPT partition scheme. And that contains the links to the swap file system, the root file system, and the, the image file itself to the output. Uh, there's a couple of tools that you can use. There is mention of NanoBSD, which has been around for a long time and is used for a lot of uh, embedded distributions. Uh, it's very, very tiny, as the name suggests, and it's basically a shell script that you can modify to uh, fit your needs. Then there's a section on building an image with Pudreair. That's also very nice functionality. There's a little warning there at the time of the writing of this article, the image building is still considered an alpha feature of Pudreair, although a lot of people use it to um, great degree and uh, have it uh, working so that it's uh, building the images they want but it's still not you know there where it want to where it should be um yeah so they describe those steps there and finally you have everything that you need to build your own images of freebsd your own distribution yeah it's really good uh, i think one of the the great strengths of the bsds is that uh, we come from a world where we're building from a single source tree and so we have everything that we need locally to create an image. Unlike a, a Linux distribution where you might be pulling in lots of stuff. Um, in Linux, there's leads to loads of situations where you're cleaning VMs because you've taken like someone else's example and you need to like remove your SSH keys because you've been testing it. Uh, and this way you can just build an image and, and spin it out and test it. Yeah. And I, I, sometimes I heard people de describe FreeBSD. Uh, it's, a big, it's a big shell script or a big make file that builds the whole system. And it's very true that, I mean, it has a lot of smaller build and make files, um, but you can do it all with one make command and it's running along. It might take some time, but you can do all kinds of modifications to it or throw stuff out or put stuff in that you, that you want. Okay, next up is the news roundup. And we have uh, news for the Minecraft uh, folks out there because you might want to update to Minecraft 1.17 in FreeBSD. And Rubiner tells us how. So uh, he writes part one of uh, Caves and Cliffs update is out. Oh, nice. Uh, he updated the Minecraft server in Claris and his FreeBSD jail. So there's a link to that. And got the following error. Uh, JNI error has occurred. Please check the installation. And yeah, so there's a couple of Java messages. And so what's the problem there? This version of ah, the version of the Java runtime only recognizes class file version up to 52.0, and you need 60 apparently. Uh, that was quite the runtime leap. According to the Java version almanac, <laughs> 60 is Java 16. 
because why not? Uh, thankfully, the tireless FreeBSD ports maintainers had their backs, and you can just do package remove open JDK 8 and package install open JDK 16, which is, as mentioned, Java 16. And that makes it work, apparently. And he says he closes with time for Clara, and I get some axolotl friends. <laughs> yeah, it's good to know that uh, people maintain this, and you can also get a newer Java version uh, on FreeBSD. Cool. Thanks for that. Okay, next up we have a, a blog post by uh, Dan Langle. Dan writes, um, Mark Felder and I have been working on a minimalist set of jail scripts for creating and updating jails. All jail management is accomplished via standard vanilla jails. No jail managers are involved. Everything goes through jail.conf. That's something I like to see. Uh, in this post, uh, Dan covers uh, a FreeBSD 13 host recently updated from 12.2. Uh, FreeBSD12.s jail on that host about to be updated to FreeBSD13. These jails were not created with make jail. Jails are mounted at slash jails. Jails are in a Z pool named system. Uh, and if you follow along, uh, he says, follow along with me. I've just updated this host from FreeBSD12.2 to FreeBSD13 as I upgrade one of the jails to FreeBSD13. Um, and so... This is this is a walkthrough Dan has of using make jail, which I guess mm, is the name like... of the new tool that, that he and Mark have written. It seems like a good guess. The link is not helpful. Okay, getting make jail. Uh, so Dan downloaded make jail locally. It's not yet a FreeBSD port. And he shows doing a, a git clone, which pulls down the script. He modified uh, make jail slash source slash etc slash make jail.conf, which I'm going to extrapolate as the configuration file for make jail. Uh, and in this file, he sets the name of the Z pool, uh, the root path for jails, and the sets for each jail. Um, yep, he says this. Uh, and then he modifies the jail package repo because Dan uses his own repos. The repos must be explicitly named for each release. That is just how I do this. You don't have to. This step is not for you if you use FreeBSD package repos. And he shows changing the URL from... Uh, I guess his custom named 12.2 uh, repo to his custom named 13 repo. Uh, updating with jail first attempt. Uh, he runs make jail upgrade dash v13.0 release uh, for the jail Ansible. And he gets cannot open system slash make jail dataset does not exist. Oh, okay. First time on this host, fair enough. Uh, and one of the other things it said was please run make jail get release for the version you want to upgrade to. Uh, so he runs the same command but without the jail name uh, and then it will pull down the manifests ah i see what he did wrong the first time uh, and then he has a poke around in the new file system which shows the usual directory structure yeah <laughs> stuff <laughs> um i i think the the make so the, i think there's a, a directory for make jail under the z pool root and then it has uh, a tree for each of the releases it's pulled down. So I think yeah. that's what he's showing. So you can keep them side by side and run a 12 yeah. jail and a 13 jail next to each other. Yeah, so they get pulled into the the root, um, the the jail root for the system. Um, that's the source, source code, he says. There's more over here. And he points to a var slash db directory, uh, which contains the tar uh, zipped file, the base sets, which are used to create the jails. Updating with jail, second attempt. Note, don't be tempted to interrupt the upgrade. The script will do a snapshot of your drill and then roll back to that snapshot should an error occur. Interrupting the script will avoid that rollback 
that's a really good warning. Uh, you probably don't want that. You can also go in manually and apply that rollback. I checked and found this snapshot. And so he has a snapshot. Um, he ran the command a second time and was successful. I wonder if the first time he ran it, it did a snapshot and then did nothing and then rolled it back. I wonder if that's what he means. Could be, yeah, if it's that smart. Yeah. Uh, and then he's got a big list of output for what it does when it's updating. He says, this is heavily reduced output. You can view the full output in a gist. Things to note, the jail was updated without intervention. Previous the update was run to apply all available OS patches. And the total time was 2 minutes, 15.6 seconds. Uh, after the upgrade, he restarted the jail. And then he went on to the next jail. Upgrade does have a dash A option to upgrade all running jails, but I'm choosing to run this one at a time. I have some database servers on here which need to be coordinated with other jails. And errors he's seen, MakeJail strives to upgrade the jail with minimal input. This can lead to situations where the default answers give rise to errors. And he has an error checking integrity assertion failed. Um, this arose when he had both Python 3.7 and Python 3.8 installed. The solution was to remove Python 3.7 and then tidy up the package. Ah, okay. This is a really cool tool. Uh, I have I have seen discussion of this yeah. floating around, um, but I've never seen an example before. Since they're still working on it, I think they uh, people can of course contribute to um, their GitHub repo. It's uh, GitHub.com/slash/makejail. Yeah, seems like a already working system. Oh, that's cool. I look forward to covering more yeah. of this in the future as well. Yeah, and I like Dan's uh, way of blogging. Here we go again. Um, so he just blogs about everything that he does and all the errors that he sees. And so people can kind of like find the error messages that they also get, even if it's years later, and see how Dan solved it, if he has. Yeah, Dan tweeted about that uh, in the last week. He was saying, um, he did a thread. Um, and back in the days of your, I'm not going to say a year because I, I, I hate <laughs> to insult him by accusing him of being too young or too old. <laughs> Um, they they did some they dealt with some problem and worked with him ages to get through. And he said we should yeah. write a blog post about this. And he got pushback saying no, no one else will ever have this problem. <laughs> well, do you know how many people there are in the world that could <laughs> encounter this? This is kind of a long. And you know, computer people are good at generating <laughs> yeah. problems. And it's like these one, <laughs> you know, you, you Google something, you find one forum post with exactly that error message someone else has posted. And no one else replied to it. And you're kind of like, eh, there's an XKCD about it, right? Who is that other soul out there? Yeah, there is. <laughs> you, you, know you're, you know you're in a bad way when you're reading Stack Overflow. And you, you don't actually care what the, the solutions are. You're just trying to make your error match up with somebody else's error. <laughs> yeah, close enough. It could solve that. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Thanks, Dan, for your efforts. And um, yeah, Mark Felder also for um, the make jail efforts. Looking forward to more. So here we have something from the Dragonfly camp. Uh, Dragonfly BSD 6.0 is performing very well against Ubuntu Linux and FreeBSD 13 over at Pharonix. So they did their usual uh, benchmarking and they found apparently that Dragonfly BSD 6.0 performs better than Dragonfly 5.8 and also puts its performance up against FreeBSD 13 and Ubuntu Linux and seems... Uh, what they're benchmarking is the Ubuntu 21.04 version, FreeBSD 13.0, and FreeBSD 13.0 plus GCC, in case someone else is relying on that. Um, we switched to LLVM toolchains a while ago, 
So um, this might or might not influence the results, but um, they describe how, what kind of system this is running on. And uh, Intel Core i9-10980XE uh, workstation with 32 gigs of RAM and uh, Samsung 970 Pro uh, NVMe SSD and a GeForce GTX 1080 Ti graphics card. Okay, so this is our start. And of course, Pharonix usually runs their own uh, benchmarks and some others. And so they have uh, the Dacapo benchmark here on the second page uh, with this Jython test. And this one, Ubuntu, so uh, on the left, fewer is better. Ubuntu has the lead on that. So this is uh, still better than the Dragonfly BSD. 6.0, but it's the next one. So the next up is next to the Ubuntu result, which is the best, is the Dragonfly 6.0. And the slowest one, it's still fast enough. I mean, uh, it's the FreeBSD 13 with GCC. And FreeBSD 13 is on third place on that one. So uh, by roughly 900 points or so. Uh, then they did a libraw test with a post-processing benchmark. And here, Ubuntu 2104 uh, one. And Dragonfly BSD was, in each of those, as far as I could see, Dragonfly BSD 6.0 is better than 5.8 Dragonfly BSD. Uh, but in this uh, benchmark, Ubuntu was only by a margin faster. So this is not by a huge uh, amount of uh, points. So this is, I think, negligible in this case. Yeah, th these are these are an interesting set of benchmarks. Um they they don't seem to weigh towards any one particular operating system or build. They they have maybe they have three yeah. pages of these, and there's you know there's different winners in different cases. So they're they're obviously um, they they look to be benchmarks that have been maybe tuned for different platforms, and where they've been tuned they they do well, and where they haven't they don't do well. Um, looking through all of them right now though, it's really interesting to see that. If if FreeBSD does better than Dragonfly BSD, it seems to always do better, whether or not it's built with GCC mm -hmm. or with Clang. Um, and equally, when it does worse, it always does worse. And I think maybe that's um, showing cases where Dragonfly BSD has maybe been tuned for the workload. Yeah, so that's why I'm kind of uh, stumbling over the title that uh, Dragonfly performs better than Ubuntu or FreeBSD, because there are a couple of those where Ubuntu is still in the lead. Well, it's I, I, maybe it's a maybe a clickbaity headline. It's it's good to see uh, performance improvement happening anywhere. It's great to see Dragonfly getting uh, performance attention. Um, yeah, and it is cool that uh, Pharonix are still testing uh, a variety of operating systems. Some of these are very close, though. I, I guess you could throw like thirty benchmarks against a wall and pick the ones you want for your headline. Yeah, the one that are looking good, and the other one you kind of disregard. But it's yeah, you should definitely mention all the other contenders and their results as well. It's a so it's a they, great game for in, in performance analysis. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so they close with uh, if taking the geometric mean of all the benchmark results conducted between both real world and synthetic benchmarks, uh, Dragonfly BSD manages to edge past Ubuntu twenty one point zero four as the fastest of the operating systems tested on this Intel Core i nine workstation. Uh, Meanwhile, FreeBSD 13 was performing similar to the prior Dragonfly 5.83 release and not too far behind Ubuntu. 
FreeBSD 13 with its default LLVM compiler was outperforming the GCC-based benchmark results. So this is already something that we can take away from that. Yeah, and it probably, I mean, it's going to show that the default branch of development is happening on Clang. Um, they used a very old GCC to build. They used one from FreeBSD 10. Um, and so you're seeing the specialization because one compiler is uh, the default. And so you're going to see more optimizations based around Clang than you will GCC because it's being used more. Yeah. It's a good article. So, and yeah. if you really like looking at bar charts, it's something to go and, to go and check out. <laughs> that, that is your article then, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, if you're running a desktop, you would pick the ones that are looking good in like uh, desktop applications like graphics processing and video uh, transcoding or something. But um, for a general purpose server, I'm not sure if that uh, is a Java test a good measure for that. You, you always have to benchmark in your own uh, environments. Okay, next up, we have uh, a new router announcement. Uh, but it's a very interesting one because it's an OpenBSD consumer gateway launch. Uh, and we have a post oh, yeah. here to the OpenBSD MISC mailing list from the marketing director of a company. Um, it's uh, AGI Etheria group of companies. Um, and they have launched the AOS HCS, a consumer gateway and server based on OpenBSD. And we could not have done it without you, they write. So a huge thank you to you, the OpenBSD developers, and those that support this group. You're all amazing, keeping Unix alive in such a form so we could build on top of it. It is the first of its kind of type of products, we believe. So we use a lot of native capabilities, such as the firewall that feels nostalgic. Many of us are ex-Sun. We've added lots of unique features like Home Anywhere, allowing a consumer to a consumer to VPN back to their home without open ports or port forwards. Secure IRT, finally in a consumer product, securing not only in VTAP and IP layers, but other areas. Uh, and so this is a, a product announcement for an OpenBSD-based home router, which might not be drastically different to the Linux home router your ISP would give you, but it's much more interesting because it's running on top of OpenBSD. And it's showing that OpenBSD is a great platform for building a product. Uh, and they include a link to their website, and it is one of the strangest looking devices I have ever seen. I'm absolutely fascinated by what it is, and they miss lots of words. <laughs> yeah, is it an, a new company, or have they been around for a while? They're they're not a, they're not a company I've heard of. Um, their their specs are interesting, um, and so it has a, an aluminium powdered case, um, 16 gigabytes of RAM minimum. 8-thread, 3.7-clock CPU. Uh, so they seem to be quite specifically not saying what it's built on top of. Um, and it has 5-gigabit uh, uh, network interface, interface, interfaces. Uh, very interestingly, they offer free software for five years, which is a, a really long guarantee for a product, and it's really great to see. Um, and hopefully we see these uh, popping up in the real world. Um, they have a, a diagram of what it includes, and it is a very strange shaped box. Uh, it looks like be uh, a small form factor PC, I would guess, because it seems to have a PS2 port on it. Um, and it's got a built-in Ethernet switch. Oh, yeah. Uh, that has a lot of functionality. And they mention also self-healing. Many of the network functions within the HCS are self-healing, allowing for some naturally occurring issues to be fixed without you even noticing. They actually have a section that says you can use any operating system, but I think that it does run on OpenBSD. Internally, yeah, for <laughs> <laughs> for booting the thing. Uh, 
Oh yeah, in the in the very bottom, they say in the hardened section, iOS uses BSD as its base, so it's naturally hardened. But then we add sprinkles on top to help harden it more. Life cannot guarantee 100% security ever, but we try to get you as far as possible. Oh yeah, well, this is certainly an interesting way um, of um, you know contributing back. And some companies use BSDs in their products or in their services, whatever they might be, but they never kind of you know, report this back to the projects, what they are using it for. And this is kind of a nice way of, you know, seeing that and letting the developers uh, know that they're grateful for their work. Okay, before we go into the feedback and questions section, we should mention the sponsor for this week, which is Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash BSD now, because there you can find the online backup for the truly paranoids. And this means... Backup solutions are sometimes provided in like a binary blob and you cannot, you know, look inside or what kind of other, you know, backdoors they have or wherever they copy your files to. And Tarsnap is different because you can read the source code and it's uh, built on open source software. Uh, and the client code is also available. You can trust them or you don't have to. You can read uh, the whole source of the, uh, the service yourself. And it will um, let you examine any kind of, hmm, is this a, a backdoor thing? Or is this some kind of making it, um, you know, are my files secured this way? And so the paranoid people will be very pleased with what they see, I'm fairly sure. So what is backup? And what is a Tarsnap backup more like? Tarsnap backups are done uh, using AWS Cloud, storing the data there. But the whole processing part of it is done on your machine even before they leave the network your local network into the cloud so first the data that you want to back up is segmented and deduplicated so it's ideally less than before and uh, it finds new unique blocks in there that are uh, new since the last time you backed up then it compresses those blocks and depending on what kind of data it is it compresses very well and once that process is done which can already a result in huge space savings that you don't have to uh, pay for. I'm going to get uh, into payment about in a second. Uh, once that is all done locally on your machine still, it will use a personal Tarsnap key that you created first to encrypt and sign those uh, data blocks. And then once this is done, that is stored in Amazon's AWS cloud until very unfortunate day, you will need it back. And then you will download it using the Tarsnap client and use your personal key again to uh, unencrypt that data because it's you know stored encrypted and no one else can see it if they don't have the key. And then you can restore your files back, whatever they might be, your personal backups, your photos, your documents, your tax files, whatever it might be that you want to store long-term and secure that no one else can peek into some you know, of the specifics there. And as long as you hold the key and don't lose it, you can always get your files back. And this is... Uh, nice way of keeping uh, sanity and also the security in place. So what does it cost? Tarsnap has a very, you know, I would say competitive model. Uh, it only charges you for 250 pico dollars of byte months of encoded data. So what does that mean? So this is 25 cents of gigabytes per month. And that allows you also to store a lot of data into the cloud and using the segmentation and deduplication allows you to actually save a lot of bandwidth or uh, storage space because the next time you back up you don't need to back up everything again because only the 
delta between the last backup and the current one are being uploaded to Tarsnaps Cloud. And when you need the files back, it has a way of retrieving the missing bits and putting it together. So this is Tarsnap. It has plenty of clients available for the BSDs, the Linuxes, the macOS out there, even for Windows, the Windows subsystem. Uh, and that is your last excuse to not use uh, uh, Tarsnap or making backups in the first place because there's clients available and you should use it. Check out the Tarsnap website, go to their um, download section, read their documentation, and I'm fairly sure you will find there's plenty of reasons to use Tarsnap. Okay, now into our feedback and questions section, which is always highly anticipated. I'm fairly sure people are waiting just for this part of the episode. And uh, this is your way of contributing to this episode or being in the episode by sending uh, something to us to feedback at bsdnow.tv. That's our email address. Uh, anything could be a question, could be a comment, how you liked our episode so far, any ideas, any topics you want us to cover. This is your question. Uh, email to send to. The first one who did this uh, this week that we're covering is Sai with a bare SSL question. So this goes, uh, Michael Forney recently released version 0.5 of libtls bare SSL, an implementation of the libtls API using Thomas Pornin's uh, bare SSL. Maybe an interesting project for those looking for an open SSL alternatives to explore. Yep, this is good. So check out the link that we provide in the show notes to libtls bare SSL. Yeah, that's really interesting. There was a, a talk at BSDCAN 2019, um, and it was improving security of the FreeBSD boot process. And you'd be thinking this is com completely irrelevant. Um, the, the talk was about uh, integrating with TPM 2.0 devices, so trusted platform modules, um, and having a secure um, trust chain for when you're bringing up a device. And part of that requires having a very good cryptographic library inside the bootloader. And bare SSL is suggested as one of the ways to do this because it was uh, very well written and very small. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's good to see that development is still going on with bare SSL. It's good to have uh, variety here. Yeah, I think it was considered at one point as a replacement for FreeBSD's um, uh, SSL implementation that, that we ship with. Uh, I think back in the day, there were some uh, things missing, but not too many. And not sure what the status is at the moment, but uh, it was certainly considered. And um, yeah, it's certainly a library that can be used to, um, if you're not trusting the OpenSSL with all the things they had in the past in security spaces. Okay, the next comment we have is from Mark. Uh, Mark writes, I finally listened to episode 404. Sorry, I'm behind. Don't worry, Mark. Benedict and I are behind <laughs> yeah. as well. Every time we check, we just get 404s. Um, and I have to say that this was the greatest Tarsnap ad I think I've ever heard. JT genuinely got a laugh out of me for that one. And speaking as a Canadian myself, we still remember when the US tried to invade us during the Napoleonic Wars. So he's right to fear our retaliation. <laughs> Thanks for the great show, guys. Keep up the fantastic work. Oh, okay. I haven't really gotten around to listening to 404 <laughs> yet. Um but I, I will make an effort now that I, <laughs> I'm kind of uh, interested now what is going to happen there. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Mark. It's always it's always great to get um, just direct feedback about how shows have gone and what people like. And it's really good to hear that you enjoyed the, the episode where we couldn't find any of the hosts. 
Maybe we're surplus Benedict. Somehow, yeah, they managed to to circumvent that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully, it doesn't happen too often. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Great. Thanks for that. And then we have some nice bug announcement. Uh, uh, they write hello to everyone on the BSD Now team. Uh, I wanted to congratulate you on your continued success in supporting the BSD community. Really, I'm just reading what they write. I'm not, you know, praising myself here. Um, <laughs> this coming month, Nicebug has a talk called Why Privacy and Security Usually Needs Anonymity by Nicebug's own George Rosamond. Oh, nice. So they will feature that on the 7th of July, 2021 at 1845 EDT via Zoom. I, I don't know if that is going to be before or after this episode airs, but hopefully there will be a recording of it. Yeah, I think the Nicebug folks have, um, they pretty much have all the recordings there. Haven't been to Nice Buck myself, but maybe one day when it's possible again, it would be nice to show up there and see what uh, they're doing. So yeah, if you have time, um, then listen to the talk and some of the talks they had in the past. It's always a good source of BSD um, yeah, knowledge and uh, yeah, wisdom, I would say. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's great to see uh, meetings still happening uh, and hopefully we're going to get more of them starting to pick up. Yeah, especially uh, it's good to see that the community can you know, survive this and uh, will keep in touch this way via video and uh, that people are still interested in giving talks about topics they're, they're into, like we do. But this episode is uh, done for the day, I would say. And uh, thank you for listening, of course. Uh, any last words from you, Tom? Oh, it's always great to to get to cover the, the latest in BSD news. Yeah, it's for me, it's the best way of, you know, keeping up with the Joneses myself. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's only... You have one favorite BSD, of course, but there's others and you're kind of like, ah, they're doing interesting stuff over there as well. And so, yeah, it's always good to have uh, that wider perspective. I, mean, I guess the real question is which BSD has the most Joneses? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, we keep that. Uh, we keep that as an open question for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening again. Thank you.